0: We are living in what is the most chaotic time in the United States during my lifetime. Now, I have to give a couple disclaimers on that, right? Uh, it is by far the most chaotic time, period, in the United States in my lifetime. And I have to give those disclaimers because throughout human history, we humans have lived in chaos, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. We have uh, been the beneficiaries of Western civilization, which was really impacted by Christianity. So when Western civilization adopted Christian ethics and Christian virtues and Christian values, Western civilization began to change. As we become more and more secularized, we'll begin to change again. We will begin to leave the Western Christian ethics, Western Christian values, and we'll start to begin to adopt other values that are non-Christians. And we will begin to experience what the majority of humans have experienced for the majority of human history. Think about all of the chaos that we're living in right now, high inflation, political turmoil, talk of wars, talk of civil war. For some, it seems like sexual ethics and morals have been thrown out the window. And it seems like we're living in this chaotic time. But look back throughout the history of humanity. And not just through the history, but other countries currently. You know, some people think that uh, that it is pro- that where our country is heading is in a progressive sexual revolution. The idea that you don't have to be married to have sex. That it's OK to just go around having sex whenever and however you want. That's not a new idea. That's not a progressive idea. In fact, that is a 2,000-year-old regressive idea. That was the culture of Rome before they adopted the Christian morals. Rome's sexual ethic was just do it whenever and wherever you want. In fact, they had temples everywhere and in the temple was the temple prostitute. And part of their act of engaging in their worship of pagan gods was to go participate. So we're not this new ethic that we're looking at is not a progressive ethic. It's 2,000 years old. It's the history of humanity and rebellion against God. But it's not just the sexual ethic that we're dealing with. And throughout the history of humanity the majority of humans did not live in the safety and security that we live in now. There was always the question of, will the crops produce? It's so easy for us to go to the store, buy some fruit, and enjoy food. But throughout the majority of human history, there was not the ability to go to the store and buy whatever you want. You had to wait on seasons. And beyond that, who knows? Maybe there would be a famine. Maybe the crops wouldn't produce. And maybe you would starve the following year. That's what the majority of humans throughout history have had to deal with. And on top of that, there was wars. Would there be another war this year? Would we be invaded by another conquering country again this year? What empire would come and take over us again? And what new values and ideals would they institute in our land? You can look through the history of humanity and you see all these small countries continually being conquered by empire after empire and each empire would institute new laws and new ideals, new values. So the Assyrians were an empire, and their whole uh, M.O. was when they would raid a country, they would take the people of the country, and they would divvy them up throughout their empire. That way, no one could have an uprising. Think about that for a second. You're a small country. You've been invaded by a new empire. And they're just going to take you and move you to a new place that you've never been to. New culture, new food, new language. You think our time is chaotic? The Persians did something totally different. They would invade and take you back to their capital so you could be their slaves. The Greeks thought that the Greek culture was the epitome of of civilization, and so they thought you should learn their language. You should learn their customs. You should learn their morals. And if you didn't, you were a second-class citizen. Throughout, the hu- throughout human history, humans have been living in chaos. Chaos. Humans have had to deal with wickedness and rebellion against God where society would not flourish. It is only because of Christian values that have impacted Western civilization that we have lived in safety and security. But as we become more and more secular, and as we reject God and his values, we will live in more and more chaotic times. And for some of us, that produces fear. For some of us, that makes us want to get into a holy huddle. Avoiding anyone from the outside. They're wicked, they're evil, don't let them impact me and my children. But God has equipped us for just such a time. He has an assignment for you In your life. He is the supreme authority of the world. He has equipped you to engage in a chaotic culture. And he's even given us examples of how we can do such a thing. And that's what we'll study today as we continue our series, Summer in the Psalms. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 99. Psalm 99, just like Psalm 98, is the author is unknown, we don't know who wrote Psalm 99. And beyond that, we also don't know the time frame, other than we know that it references Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, so we know that it has to be sometime after Samuel. But we're not sure the time frame. There are a lot of scholars that debate when Psalm 99 was written. I'm just going to go out on the ledge and say, I don't know. So don't expect me to give you a time frame. I don't know. It's also a royal psalm. So it is declaring that God is the ruler of the universe. And we know that it is also written about, so it's written after the exodus, but it highlights the exodus and the the, uh, events that occur after the exodus. All right, so Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. All right, so let's dive in. The Lord reigns. So we need to talk a little bit about this idea of the Lord reigning. To reign means to have supreme authority, supreme rule. Now, some people read this, and kind of our default is micro a God that micromanages, that controls every single detail of your life and actually forces you to make certain decisions, I don't think that's necessarily what God does. I think we usually come to that opinion because we can't imagine God having supreme authority and accomplishing his will without controlling everything because we couldn't. I couldn't accomplish everything I want to accomplish without controlling other people. But God can. God can accomplish his purposes. God can can accomplish his will without controlling and micromanaging everyone. I think this is important for us to understand because oftentimes we can end up in some really bad theology if we don't understand what God's reign truly means. It means that he has supreme authority, that all authority stops at him, that he can and will accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. When he says something is going to happen, he will make it happen. But that doesn't mean that he controls every last aspect. In his supreme authority, he has given us freedom. Now, what's amazing about that is he doesn't need to control us to, con- to uh, make his purpose come about. But he makes his purpose come about even within our freedom and even it within our rebellion. The problem is, if he controls everything meaning he dictates everything I do, then God becomes responsible for sin. And we know that God cannot sin. So we know that God does not force us to sin. So we know that God does not control everything. I think there's also this kind of egocentric idea that comes about with God controlling everything, God dictating everything, And what I mean by that is oftentimes we use it as an excuse to explain something bad. Sometimes we find that comforting. So when my first wife died, people would try to comfort me by saying something along the lines of, well, God did this for a reason. Let's step back from that statement for a second and unpack it. God did this. So God took an God took a life. God killed someone with no with one purpose, I should say. To teach me a lesson? Now does that sound like the character of God? That God would kill someone so that just step back for a second. That God would kill someone to teach me a lesson? just doesn't seem right. And not only does it not seem right, but it seems egocentric. Meaning, everything revolves around me. God's killing people so that I would learn? No, that's not the character of God. He doesn't kill people off for you. So what happened the night that my wife died? People made bad decisions. People made a mistake. My wife in particular, she made a mistake. It was an accident. It's something that happens when sin creeps into the world. Because Adam sinned, he brought corruption into the world. And from that corruption, now we make mistakes and we sin. But a lot of death is just the result of a simple mistake. Some some death is the result of sin. Some death is the result of mistakes. some Some death is just simply the result of our corrupt bodies that we received upon Adam's sin. So my wife made a mistake. She ran a stop sign. That wasn't God dictating that she run the stop sign. That was her mistake. Now what's amazing about God, and I think what people actually mean when they say God did this for a reason is that God can take our sin, God can take our rebellion, God can take our mistakes, and he can use them to accomplish his will. So I don't believe that God killed Tammy. I believe she made a mistake. The result of her death was her mistake. But God took that mistake, And he used it in my life to draw me closer to him. So when we trust God, even in our rebellion, when we trust God even in our mistakes, when we trust God even in our sin, when we recognize that we have sinned, that we have shaken our fist against God, that we have rebelled against him, and we come to repentance, God can use that to draw us closer to him. So I think that's important to understand that God's reign, his supreme authority, doesn't mean that he's a micromanager, but means that he can use all of our acts, even our acts of rebellion, to accomplish his purpose. And in me, that actually produces more trust. Time and time again, we ask this question, why God? And we're not always given the answer. Why did Tammy die? Other than she made a mistake, I can't give you an answer. There are times in your life where something unexpected happens, where where there's a twist, where you think God is pointing you this way, and then all of a sudden he throws you another curveball and you're this way. And you might ask, why God? And you can't always have the answer. There can't always be a known. But one thing that we do know Even if we don't know the whole reasons, even if we don't know the whole purpose, one thing we do know is that God can use it to grow you and mature you in his grace and to draw you closer to him. And that when you fully trust God in the midst of all the craziness of life, of all the chaos of life, he will give you more peace and he will comfort you all the more. So why God? Well, I don't know. But I do know that God is the supreme authority, the supreme ruler over the earth, and that in the midst of the chaos, I can trust him. So the Lord reigns. He is the supreme authority in all the earth. Let the peoples tremble. Now, this is an interesting uh, result of his reign, isn't it? Last week, we see... Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done more marvelous things. There is this reaction of God reigning and ruling of worship, right? Where we are like, we're going to praise God, but this isn't where he's going with it. We're instructed that the Lord reigns, he is the supreme authority, he is the supreme ruler, so start to tremble. The word tremble here means to quake in fear. Have you ever quaked in fear? Have you ever been so afraid of something that you start to shake? I can remember there I played this game as a kid where it was like the opposite of hide and seek where one person would go hide and the rest of us would have to like go out and find that person and we were playing with a group of people and one of the one of the kids in the group they were telling us they were sure they saw this figure in a bush. And I didn't see it, but everybody there started to believe it. Like everybody started to believe, have you ever been around where someone is so sure about something that the whole crowd starts to believe it? So everybody starts to believe that there's this figure in this bush and, and like, we're not sure what's going on. So we all go get flashlights and we're like, shine the flashlight in there. We don't see anything. So we gather around by some cars to kind of discuss what's going on. Is this a ghost that we are seeing? And as we're discussing this, my mom, who had this like blue bathrobe, she went out back. To, like, to try to figure out what we're doing with all these flashlights. And she comes around, so we don't know that she's coming, and she turns the corner of our house, and someone says, Oh, look! And someone else shined their flashlight on this blue bathrobe that now looks like this blue figure is like floating towards us. And we all screamed in fear. I had a baseball bat in my hand, because I was going to be armed, and I almost hit my dad's truck with the baseball bat. I was like, ah! That's trembling, that's screaming in fear, right? That's what he's getting at, that we should recognize that God is the supreme authority and we should be trembling about this. So the question is why? In some parts we are told to celebrate, but here we're told to tremble with fear. Well, it's, really, it's directly related to what we constantly read throughout the Proverbs, and that is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord... And this idea is all connected with with what is our root sin. Our root sin that causes and actually uh, stirs up all the other sin in our life is our desire to be God. We all have a desire to be the supreme authority in our life. It starts at an early age. If you're a parent and you've ever fought a food battle with your kid, where you sit down and they sit down, and they're going to, you're, you've worked hard on this meal that you are now going to lavish your kid with, this healthy dinner. And they look at you and they say, gross. You're like, what are you talking about, gross? You ate like 10 of those yesterday. Gross. I hate macaroni and cheese. I'm not kidding you. We have had kids tell us, gross, I hate macaroni and cheese. And it can be so frustrating What Jen and I learned early on is oftentimes food battle is a result of a kid trying to establish their own authority, their own will. So even if they love what they're about to eat, they might tell you, nasty, disgusting, because I want you to realize that I have control over my body. I have control over my life. That's where it starts, that early of an age. And it only grows from there, doesn't it? Unless we come to the realization that God is the supreme authority. Our desire is to be the supreme authority. Now, one of the problems with that is when it comes to morality, if I'm the supreme authority, morality is going to constantly change based on my desire. So if I one day think the speed limit should be 65 and I think I'm the supreme authority, then I'm going to go 65 through a school zone while kids are walking. But I can justify it, can't I? Every little action we commit, we can justify. And that's the problem with us being the supreme authority. We need to have an objective moral authority and not just individually, but as a society. If we don't have an objective moral authority, if our moral authority isn't rooted in someone greater than us, isn't rooted in God, then as a society, our morality will continually change. And what was good one day will be an abomination the next. And then what was an abomination yesterday will be called good today. And we will be so confused because we will never be able to keep up with what is right and what is wrong. And it all comes from this idea that we are the moral authority, that we are the supreme rulers. And that's what our sin is all rooted in. So why do we tremble? We tremble because we recognize that we aren't the moral authority, that we aren't the supreme ruler, but that God is. And that God, who is a supreme ruler, has a moral authority that doesn't change And all of us at some point in our life have violated his moral authority. Every single one of us has shaken our fist at God, said, forget you, God. I want to be the God of my own life. And for this reason, every single one of us deserve death. Every single one of us deserve eternal separation from God. But by his grace, he came and he paid the price for our rebelliousness. And he has offered us eternal life. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in Christ. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You have to confess, I've rebelled. But I believe that you have put your faith and trust. Or Sorry, I believe that you have died for my sin, for my rebellion. So that's why the people's trembles. Then it goes on to explain, and this second line is kind of just Rehashing the first line, he is enthroned upon the cherubim. So you could picture a king like being carried. you know, he's sitting in his throne and he's being carried by a bunch of people. That's what being enthroned upon the cherubim is a picture of, and it signifies his great authority, that the cherubim are carrying him. The cherubim are angelic beings that have both human and animal characteristics, and they are carrying God, symbolizing his great authority. And then the earth, let the earth quake. And the idea here is that even the earth gets it. Even the earth understands that God is the supreme authority, that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and within that, the earth quakes before him. How dare you, you mere mortal, try to usurp his power and declare that you are the moral authority? This week we watched as the mountains burned, it was a sad sight. But it was also a sight that that I was in awe of. Here are these mountains that that have stood there longer than I can comprehend. On fire. And long after I'm dead, the forest will grow again. And yet I have the audacity to think that I can be the moral authority. Even the earth gets it we should be able to get it as well. The Lord is great in Zion. Here he's just reassuring Israel that he brought them out of Egypt. He's reassuring them of the Exodus and that he is going to remain true to his covenant. He gave them what is called the Mosaic Covenant. So there's several different covenants we can talk about through the Old Testament. There are two types of covenants that we'll just mention. One is a bilateral covenant. The other one is a unilateral covenant. So in Genesis 12, he gives Abraham what's called a unilateral covenant. The unilateral covenant is simply God saying, I'm going to accomplish this with or without you. I'm going to do this thing. So in Genesis 12, he gives Abraham a unilateral covenant. He tells Abraham, I'm going to create a, a nation out of you, and through this nation, I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to bless the peoples of the earth. That's the unilateral covenant. He didn't say, it's all dependent upon you, Abraham. If you sin, if you rebel against me, then guess what? I'm no longer going to do this thing. No, he says, I'm going to accomplish this. And guess what he does? He accomplishes it. And this is a direct reference to Jesus dying on the cross for you and I, that we can have access to God and our sins can be forgiven. Through Abraham, God has blessed all the people of the world. It didn't depend on Abraham. The covenant that he's referencing here, though, is a bilateral covenant. It's full of if-then statements. And we find this in Exodus 19, and actually the entire book of Deuteronomy is is a book of this covenant that God is going to make with Israel. And it's full of if-then statements, meaning... It is dependent upon Israel as well. If you obey God and remain faithful to him, he will bless Israel and protect them. However, if they are unfaithful and disobedient to him and worship other gods, then he will raise up another nation to come and discipline them. So this is a reference that he is going to remain faithful to that if-then bilateral covenant that is dependent upon both parties. Both parties have a part to play. Israel has a part, God has a part, and he will react accordingly to how they act. All right. So that's the if-then statement. He is exalted over all peoples. So not only is he going to remain faithful to Israel, but he, he also will be glorified and will uh, be worshipped by all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. So, he used Israel with the bilateral covenant, and not just the bilateral, but he also made unilateral covenants with Israel, and he uses Israel to reveal himself to the world, to glorify himself through Israel, so all the world, so that all the peoples, can come and know him. That is the purpose of Israel. That they would praise him. It's similar with the church. God, right now, in this current era, is using the church to reveal his glory and evangelize to the world. We are called his ambassadors. Which leaves the question, because God was using Israel in a very specific way. They had a if-then statements. They had a bilateral covenant. He had his Shekinah glory, which we'll get to in a little bit, walking with them. So he was revealing himself to a world in a very specific way with Israel. How then does he reveal himself through the church? How then does he work through the church to evangelize the world? I think it's an important conversation and one that I think you can have on the way home, in your car, with your children. How does God use the church and how is God going to use you? But I think this should change the way we think about church. Church isn't just a place that we go to feel good. Church isn't really about me. The church comes together to reflect God's glory to the world. And how we interact with the world will demonstrate God's glory. So Roe versus Wade, uh, the the ruling that might overturn it, that was leaked a few weeks ago, is going to come out here in a few weeks. There are a lot of secular Pro-choice people that are very mad about the potential of Roe versus Wade being overturned. So mad, in fact, that they have started bombing pro-life centers and started protesting churches. Now, I don't think we're going to have a protest here. But I can't guarantee it. We as a church better be ready for when the protesters show up. Protesters very well could show up. So I've been talking with our safety team about what to do. And we've kind of devised a plan. And the plan goes like this, because we don't, one of the big reasons why they want to protest is they want us to interact in a negative way to make the church look horrible. That's a big part of their plan. They want us to look bad. So what we've decided to do is instead of engaging, no one in the congregation except for a few chosen people, are to engage the protesters. Everyone else is to come into the sanctuary. And while we're in here, we are going to worship God, and we are going to pray for the protesters. That's one of the ways that we reveal God's glory to the world. That as they come to protest, as they hate us, we pray for them. What a difference it makes. One of the reasons why Christianity spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire, this incredibly pagan empire, is because while they were burning Christians at the stake, Christians were willing to pray. Christians were willing to say, God, forgive them. That's where the rubber meets the road. It's really easy for us to get together and scratch each other's backs and holy huddles and talk about morality. But do you really believe in eternity? Do you really believe that you will be spending the rest of eternity with your heavenly Father? And if you do, how do you react when those who hate you come for you? Do you return violence for violence? Or do you pray for those who persecute you? I would hope that as a church, we're ready to pray for those who might hate the church. And as they see the love that we have for them and for God, that their hearts would begin to change. So let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Now, what's interesting here is the he is, a, is actually a pronoun, and the pronoun, I believe, due to the context, is actually replacing his holy name. So I think that this should probably read, and some of your translations will say, holy is it. It referring to God's name. Now, what's interesting about this is, for the Jew, God's name was considered so holy that you weren't able, you weren't supposed to pronounce it or even write it. So we don't actually have what the Jews had as God's name, its writing, or how to pronounce it. What we have is how they shortened God's name. Now, I think this is important for us to ponder for a little bit, because we oftentimes use God's name so often and so incorrectly that it's become commonplace. We do this with a lot of words. Words have meaning. Language has meaning. So we do this with words like awesome. How many times a day do you use the word awesome? If you're around a kid, you probably use it a lot more, right? Every time a kid does something, you're like, wow, that's awesome. And pretty soon, a kid just thinks awesome means nothing. Oh, my dad was watching me. That's what awesome means, right? We use it so often that it becomes meaningless. Or how about love? I love my kids. I love mountain biking. I love the mountains. I love spring. I love summer. I love the creek. I love tacos. I love my wife. Now, that has become a confused word. When someone says love is love, what do they actually mean? What do they mean by the term love? Does it mean physical enjoyment is physical enjoyment? Do they mean that love, meaning I'm going to do what's best for you no matter how it hurts me, is love? You see what I mean? That when we use words and we overuse words and we don't become specific with our words, they lose their meaning. The same is true for the word God. We can, come, we can make it so commonplace that we use this term God and we use it incorrectly, misrepresenting God. So uh, a guy that used to attend church here used to tell me the story about this church that he was going to and they asked him to become an elder and one of the elders there was divorced and he was like, well, what happened with that? What's the story with that? he goes, oh, you know what? Uh, Jesus says that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And my wife, she just kept making me so angry that I decided I just had to cut it off. I don't think you're actually correctly applying that piece of scripture there. Like, you have really twisted the Bible to fit your own narrative, haven't you? If your wife's making you angry, first of all, she's not actually making you angry. You have anger in your heart, and she's giving you opportunity to reveal that anger. You've got some serious heart issues that you've got to deal with. Quit blaming your wife, and quit using God as an excuse to justify your sin. But we do that often, and we use God as an excuse, and so we actually take away the holiness of his name. We should become a little bit more careful when we use the name God. The king in his might loves justice. Contextually, this is kind of a difficult verse. Uh, Some of your your translations have the king in his might loves justice. Others will have something similar but slightly different. I think this is actually two different uh, statements. and It would be the king is strong. And he loves justice. These two statements both are a reference back to Exodus. And it's showing that God is strong. He revealed his strength through the events of Exodus. And he also loves justice. So God heard the cries of his people. He saw the injustice happening in Israel. And he exercised his superior moral authority and his final authority to... Uh, enact the events of Israel to release the Israelites. So that's the Exodus event. And then the next three lines will actually give us what he, how he establishes his moral authority within Israel. You have established equity, you have executed justice, and righteousness in Jacob. So the first line, or the first two lines I should say, the king is strong, the king loves justice, that's a reference to the Exodus, he has shown his strength, he has shown his justice, and then the next three lines are actually a reference to Mount Sinai, where he gives them the law. Essentially, it's, I have freed you guys, I have brought justice upon you, I have freed you, now here is how you can live as a society in freedom. Here's how you as a culture, as a society, can flourish and thrive. So if we as a culture, if we as a society want to Flourish and thrive, we need justice, equity, and righteousness. Throughout the Old Testament, you will find these three words, and they're usually lumped together because they go together. So throughout the Proverbs, you'll read about equity, justice, and righteousness. So equity in the Hebrew is mesarim, and it originally meant for water to flow level. So we could think of it as this, as a bubble level. Have you ever brought out that bubble leveler, and you're like trying to find and make sure something is entirely level? Some people are really good about that, and like make that you could walk through and measure every single thing in their house that, and it's all level. I usually just eyeball something. I think if you just can't see that it's that's not level, then it's good to go, right? That's just me, but but that's the bubble level, and what it means is that there's two kind of when we talk about the judicial system, or morality, there's two purposes behind this. One is that we would treat others with equity, meaning that we don't judge people based upon their income or power or status. This is so important for a judicial system, for a court system. You know, if somebody that's a celebrity can walk in and say, yeah, I'm a celebrity, so whatever charges you have against me, just drop them. And the court drops them. That's inequity. That's not being equitable. So equity is important for a society to flourish, to not judge others based upon their power or influence, celebrity status, their wealth, but that all would be judged on a same equal level. The other part of this that has to do with morality is it creates a moral path. It gives us a moral path to follow. So then there's justice. Justice in the Hebrew is mishpat, and it means correct moral judgment. Correct moral judgment. So what is a correct moral judgment? in our culture. How can we go about judging correctly? Who's morally right? We just mentioned the Roe versus Wade possible overturning. There are moral judgments that go into that. Oftentimes people say you can't legislate morality, and I would say every single piece of legislation is a moral judgment. There is a constant debate about moral judgment. Because God is the supreme authority and the creator of the universe, if we want to have correct moral judgments, we have to be rooted in him. If we are not rooted in him, if we are not developing our correct moral judgments, our mishpat from God, we will get it wrong. And then righteousness in the Hebrew is tzaddik. And that means living according to the correct moral judgment. How do you live your life? Where do you turn for morality? Where do you go to say this is right and this is wrong? Once again, if we don't turn towards God, then our moral judgments will be constantly changing. Only God can give us the true and correct moral, righteous path. Now I assure you, you and I will fail at that path. We won't always be able to walk in it. But every time we mess up, we should be able to reorient our path back to God's moral righteousness. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Now here we find the, the pronoun actually does replace God and it is he that is holy. Holy means other than. It's a way to describe God because God is so great, because God is so beyond us that we can't even accurately describe him, so we have to describe him as other than. He's just too much for our finite brains to comprehend. He is other than. Mer- Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called upon his name. So we've got to talk just for a little bit about this term priest, Priest in the Old Testament meant mediator. What's interesting here, though, is that Aaron was the first formal priest. And that from his lineage would all the priests be called. And yet here we see that Moses and Samuel are both called priests. So we have to understand a little bit about this term priest. A priest is a mediator. We see that that when the priests weren't performing their duties, God would raise up others who would function as a priest. So Moses was functioning as a priest before Aaron even became a formal priest. And then we see that Samuel was raised up during a wicked generation where all of the priests were incredibly wicked beyond what you and I would recognize. And, and God raises him up to function both as prophet and priest. Later on, after Jesus is ascends to heaven, then Peter calls all of us priests. Have you ever thought about that? If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, that you are a priest, take some time and let that sink in. You're considered a priest. Now, what's different when Peter calls us a priest is Christ is the ultimate priest. Christ has done the mediation for us. Israel, in Exodus 19... God says that he is raising Israel up to be a priest of nations. And so they were going to be mediators for all of humanity. And then they find that Jesus fulfills that role perfectly. So Jesus becomes the mediator. We no longer need mediators. We no longer need priests to mediate on our behalf. You don't need a priest. I think it's so important. People always assume oh, always assume. That the pastor has like a direct line to God? Trust me, my line isn't any more direct than yours. You also have a direct line to God. So you're considered a priest. So what does that mean? Since Jesus fulfilled that that role fully, what we see as as the New Testament unfolds that the priests were beginning to be described as their functions. So priest goes from a mediator to someone who is serving God. Functioning as a minister. You are called a priest. You have an assignment from God. God calls you a priest. You have an assignment, a role, a function to play. What is your assignment? What is God calling you to? For those of you who are a little bit younger, I wanted to remind you that Josiah was eight years old when he became king. We just saw the kids come back in. How many of you are eight? Yeah, we got a couple eight years old. God has an assignment for you. How many of you are older than eight? Yeah, we should see a lot more. God has an assignment for you. There's no one too young, nor is there anyone too old. God has called you a priest. He has a function for you to to fulfill. They called to the Lord, and he answered. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. This is the Shekinah glory that he used to to guide them, to lead them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. So this is a reference to the Old Testament law. And even though we are under a new covenant, we aren't under the bilateral covenant that Israel was under. We are under a new covenant. when When we live out Scripture, when we grow in God's grace, we are being a witness to those who are around us. Do you want to know the best way to have your kid walk away from the faith? Don't live it out. I constantly run into parents that bring their kids to like a youth group and they say, fix my kid. Are you living out your faith? When you do, you are living a testimony. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but avenger of their wrongdoings. This is simply uh, talking about God's justice and His mercy, that God is both a just, holy God and a merciful, forgiving God. There is a little bit of a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, and I don't think we have quite enough time to get into that. But I want you to ponder: what is just, or what is reconciliation? What is forgiveness? Oftentimes, we're told that we have to forgive. And it's true, as Christians, we are, we are commanded to forgive. But forgiving someone doesn't mean to be reconciled to them. Forgiveness means not holding their sin against them anymore. When someone sins against you, you can forgive them without them ever asking you for forgiveness. But reconciliation cannot happen. I want to say that again. Reconciliation cannot happen without repentance. Reconciliation means bringing that relationship back to where it used to be, to a healthy, thriving relationship. Without repentance, reconciliation cannot happen. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. So the result of his rule is our worship. That's the result of his rule our worship. Moses was called during a difficult time. Born a Jew, raised as an Egyptian, hated by both. And yet God called him to a difficult assignment to free the very people who hated him. Think about that for a second. As you ponder a secularized culture that might start to hate Christians, Moses was called to deliver the very people that hated him. He trusted God. He trusted in God's supreme authority. And God did amazing things through him. Aaron had a difficult assignment. He was a people pleaser by nature. And yet God called him to be a priest, to mediate on behalf of people, and to to please God instead of man. He had to trust in God's supreme authority. And God did amazing things through Aaron. Samuel was raised during a difficult time. Raised as a priest, but called to be a prophet during a time where priests were wicked beyond our imagination where Israel had, become, had grown more and more wicked, and he was called to return Israel back to God, what seemed to be an insurmountable task. Yet he trusted in God's supreme authority, and God did amazing things through him. This is the most chaotic time in the United States in my lifetime. It seems like an insurmountable task as well. It seems like all might be lost, like we might just want to retire and fold into this holy huddle and watch the world as it burns. And yet God has called us to be a light to the world, to show His love to the world, and preach His gospel to the world. The only way we're going to be able to do that is to trust in His supreme authority Dear Lord we love and we praise your name we thank you that you are the supreme authority of this earth and we recognize that oftentimes we try to usurp your power we try to be the authority and Lord we repent of that we turn from that we recognize you as the supreme authority and we thank you that you paid the price for our rebellion help us to trust and you all the more. Help us to know what our assignment is and to engage in a world that is full of rebellion in such a way that you would be glorified. In your name we pray.